Well, good morning, Hoffman Town. My name is Dr. Matt Brooks. On behalf of our pastor, Dr. Jack Graham, I come to you from Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and so glad to excited and honored to see you this morning. And we're excited about what the Lord is doing in and amongst you at Hoffmantown, a church that God has used through the years to not just radically reach New Mexico for the glory of Christ, but this entire part of the country. I'm also excited to be here this morning because the Lord, in his sense of humor, not only am I on a central time zone and moving to New Mexico, being in a mountain time zone. It's also daylight savings time today. So Brent and I, so grateful for your hospitality. Well, we got into our hotel last night. We're about to go to bed. And I said, what time is it right now? So I knew the time that was on my iPhone. And then our hotel room actually had two different clocks. So I felt pretty good about that. And so I called the front desk and said, yes, good sir, I would like a phone call right before 7 o'clock in the morning. He said, no problem, Dr. Brooks will take care of it. So we hang up. I wake up the next morning, and I don't know what time it is. So the phone rings, and it says, good morning, this is your wake-up call. And I said, well, what time is it? He says, well, it's almost 7 a.m. I said, how do you know? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's daylight savings time today. And he goes, it is? And I said... So I look at my iPhone, and my iPhone actually said it was 5.45 in the morning. So I knew that wasn't right. So I looked at one alarm clock, and it quit. Like, it was so confused with daylight savings time, it literally just imploded. I'm out. Done. So we had a clock on our microwave that said 8.45, and I knew that wasn't right. So here we go. What time is it? So I call Siri. Siri, what time is it? I don't know. So we're just really grateful to be here this morning. I, I, I don't believe that clock in the back at all. It's wrong. I don't know many things. I, I know the two things here. One, we're either right on time, or some of you in the land of Mignana are on time for the first time in a long time, right? But here's what I do know, church. Jesus is alive and king. And he's in control of this church. And you have had many seasons of blessing. And you've had many seasons where you've been on your knees praying. And the one constant in both those seasons is a king. And he loves you. And the best days of Hoffentown are ahead. And I get excited about what God's doing in Hoffentown because the Lord providentially brought Steve Dighton here. One of the top interim pastors in the country, a faithful expositor, a wonderful pastor, such wisdom. And the best thing about Steve is Mary comes too. <laughs> so to have Steve and Mary Dighton here in this season of life, in the life of your church, what a blessing. And it's an honor to be with you this morning. With that in mind, if you would, open your Bibles and meet the book of Acts this morning. Pastor Steve is right in a series about the early church. And so last week, he talked about the priorities of the church from Acts chapter 2. And what I want to do is I want to build from that. I want to take that sovereign foundation, these priorities in verse 42, and then I want to give you seven, seven marks of a church that makes a difference from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite books as a U.S. historian and world historian is the book of Acts. Luke is one of the most profound historians that God has ever exposed us to. And Acts details to us the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the early church. That same Holy Spirit that is intrinsically and intimately and vibrantly working in each and every one of us 2,000 years removed from this text. 
And by the time you come to verses 42 through 47, it is from this wonderful precipice of Peter preaching his first sermon, specifically Jews in Jerusalem. And he tells them that though you were men and women of covenant, though you were children of tradition, the very Messiah came and instead of you embracing him and repenting of your sins, you rejected it. And in light of that, you are now damned in your sins. But God is graceful. And if you will, in verse 38, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and choose to place your soul, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And the Bible says that this happened in verse 38 and verse 41. 3,000 people at one time not only believed, but were baptized. They publicly confessed what was true on the outside. They publicly confessed what was true on the inside. They were baptized. And as a result of that, you have now a devotion to specific things. The early church didn't say, give us more of these things. No, they said, we're going to prioritize our life in four things. And so I want to lay this beautiful foundation to you in verse 42. And I'm going to add three more. And I want to, from God's word to this text, for you walk out of here and do life is this. You can be a church that makes a difference. In light of that, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And your Bible says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If you're going to be a church that makes a difference, number one, you must be Jesus-centered. You see that word devoted there? Underline it. As a result of who Jesus is and what he has done, this is what his church did. What you are devoted to gets you. Your life is ultimately a culmination of choices. Those choices are a culmination of your thoughts. Your thoughts are empowered by your desires. And your desires are fed by your devotions. What you are devoted to gets you. In the early church, hearing this gospel, being generation after generation of tradition and of covenant, gave their life completely to a carpenter from Nazareth. And the moment they did, God began to intrinsically change their lives, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And they devoted themselves to these things. It was the great missiologist William Carey who said it well when he said, I am not afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding in things that ultimately do not matter. Despite relentless hate and persecution, the early church devoted themselves to these things. They were all in. You know, if you want to do a beautiful study sometime between you and the Lord, just start reading the word all in the Bible. It may take you a while. In fact, did you realize that the word all shows up 5,675 separate times? It's through the Spirit of the Word all that you and I realize who we are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is through this word all that you and I, though, that despite what we go through in life, Paul says in Romans 8 that all things work for the good for those who are in Christ Jesus and are called to his purpose. Regardless of our high times and low times, Regardless of our best seasons or our struggles, there's not a thing in your life in Christ. There's an ultimately for God's glory and your good. All. It is Solomon, the wisest man, arguably, that God has ever given us in the Old Testament. 
said in Proverbs 3, 6, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Church, Jesus knows all our ways. We should then devote to him all our days. In fact, I'll say it a little bit more clear. Did you realize that there is not one time in the Bible, not one verse, where God accepts partial devotion? When you come to Christ, you come on his terms. And you're either all in or all out. And God graciously, for those who are humbled by that, and you should, for those who remind ourselves, Lord, that there's nothing I can do in and of my life, in and of myself, in and of my strength and my resources that I can't do without you, God honors the testimony of such men and women and boys and girls. And he has such care for his glory in our lives that he lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything that he has put in our path. God honors your devotion. God honors your persistence, your diligent single-mindedness. They refuse to quit. They did these things day in and day out. And the world has never been the same. Devotion is saying no then to anything that keeps you from saying yes to Jesus. Churches that make a difference, they are Jesus-centered. They are devoted to saying no to anything that keeps them from saying yes to Jesus. Oh, church, may we make a difference by being Jesus-centered. Secondly, they were word and community-driven. They were word and community-driven. Look back at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching and obediently living out God's word was the focus of the congregation's life in the book of Acts. It was not just Bible study, it was Bible living. Now in light of that, this apostle's teaching is, is very significant. It consisted of the entire Old Testament, all 39 books. It also encompassed the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also included the ethical teachings of the apostles themselves, which, by the way, in the New Testament is 1,934 separate quotations. This was a profound amount of content that these men and women, boys and girls, as the early church were devoting themselves to. But there's something else interesting. They were not just driven by knowledge or esteem. They wanted to obediently live it out in their lives. This word teaching here is an active word. It describes here instruction through lifestyle. The apostles were teaching not just content from the Old Testament, not just testimonies of the lives and teachings of Jesus, but rather were living it out in and amongst them people from themselves. So in light of that truth, they weren't just preaching the word of God to hear, they were preaching the word of God to do and to live. There was an expectation from the church to obey and to apply and to think on God's words in their lives and in their homes and in the marketplaces. No wonder God worked in and amongst and through this church. It is a spirit-filled life that starts with being mindful of God's word. So what church are you filling your mind with? What is it? 
Can I encourage you really quick that this book is very intimidating on its cover. Two Testaments, 66 books, over 40 separate authors, just under 1,500 years of history, places and names that most of us have never even heard from, and frankly, some of us can't even pronounce, right? Moving on. In light of that, if you set your timer for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes a day, did you realize that you can read the entire New Testament twice in a year? Just 10 minutes. In fact, if you add two minutes, you can read the entire Bible once in a year. That's just under 2,000 pages, 12 minutes a day. If you win, here we go, 15 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible once in the entire New Testament twice. My walk with the Lord and knowing him over 30 years has always, the scope of my walk has always matched the depth and my persistence to read God's word, to engage God's word, to read the word of God, to live the word of God. And a church that makes a difference is word-driven. We are people of the book and by the book because the word of God takes us to the God of the word. They were word-driven. They were also community-driven. Look back at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, notice fellowship was the natural result of a relationship in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The church in Acts was intentionally relational. They knew nothing else. The moment they gave their life to Christ, they immediately were drawn toward one another. They were consumed from the beginning of their relationship to extend and to grow that relationship with other relationships around the Bible. Now, most of us know this word, and Pastor Steve talked about this beautifully last week. This word is of the word kononia. Most of us know this in this room. However, most of us don't know the uniqueness of kononia. Did you realize that the word kononia is not found one time in the Gospels? It is not described the ministry of Jesus not one time. And trust me, no one knows relationships better than Jesus. That's unique. It also then appears only one time right here in the book of Acts. Why? Because Luke the historian is making a very important observation. That this Konania fellowship, being Jesus-centered and word-driven and community-driven, was not a way of life for the early church. That's his point. But was the way of life. It was impossible, improbable for Christians to live in isolation or seclusion. That is why in the ethical teachings of the church found in Paul's writings, you will find over 20 separate times that we are commanded as the church to be with one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, to encourage one another. Let me say that another way. Fellowship empowers fellowship for kingship. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15? Right at the end of his ministry. Been with him three years. They'd seen him do amazing things. The lame walk. The blind see. The poor are fed. And Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them in John 15... I shall not call you a slave or a servant. 
For a servant knows not what his master is doing, but I shall call you friend. For everything my father has taught me, I have taught you. It's amazing to me that Jesus, even in his investment in the disciples, said that as I continue to grow in the intimacy and knowledge of the Father as part of the triune God, the greatest application of that truth is not in communicating to the thousands, but is investing in the few. We must, as Robert Coleman said, invest in the few to reach the many. And I don't know if if you've watched the news for, I don't know, two seconds lately. We need one another to be encouraged and forgiven and in love. Because fellowship empowers fellowship for kingship. You are not made for things, but for a king. And in giving your life to a king, you will find that he will ask more of you than you ever possibly imagined. But he will empower you more than you could ever perceive. And it will be a faithful brother and sister in Christ that will sometimes cheer you on and will sometimes give you a hug and give you the right hand of fellowship and the right foot of fellowship, frankly. And we will grow more and more like Christ, the King. Churches that make a difference, they're not only Jesus-centered, they're not only word-driven, they're community-driven. They're also, fourthly, they're mission-focused. Look back at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Here we go. We got this one down as Baptist, right? This phrase, breaking of bread, is significant. It's only found twice in the entire New Testament. One right here, and secondly, in Luke chapter 24, verse 35, on the way to the road to Emmaus, Jesus describing it in his resurrected state, kind of his summary of ministry to the disciples. Now, this word breaking of bread here, it's a unique term. It's linked grammatically to fellowship, and it conveys here more of a broad sharing of meals, but rather a unique table fellowship. It conveys intentionality. It conveys specifically the early church using a part of their daily life And to draw people closer and closer to Jesus. Now this time historically, synagogues were places of religious assembly. Community centers that would often include a dining hall for travelers. And what the early church did, that they were contrasting culture because breaking bread with other cultures was radically distinct to Christianity. One, because attitudes towards non-Jews was very, very hostile, if not negative. And Gentiles were considered godless and idolatrous and unclean. And so the early church, now consumed and devoted to Christ, now growing in their instruction of the Lord and the application of that, knew that all things were given to them by God. That everything that God had graciously given them was meant to use to point people back to not the gift, but the giver. And they were using meals as an opportunity to strategically point people to Jesus. In fact, historians, not biblical commentators, but historians have so aptly translated this season of life in the Christian church as an agape meal. It was a meal where they would gather under great food and they would partake of the Lord's Supper. Now think of the significance of that. The Bible is very clear that those who partake of the Lord's Supper must repent and believe in Jesus Christ before they partake. 
They are believers in Christ. And so they would have a chance over good food to first give thanks and to share the gospel and the good news. They would then, through their meal, they would discuss the scriptures from the teachings of the apostles. And they would grow and learn together. There was an environment and culture that was safe to grow and to ask questions and to struggle and to draw more and more and more in community. Have you ever thought that God desires to reach just as many people from your dinner table as he does this church or this pulpit? Is it connected with us that God just wants as much to grow in the Lord inside of our Sunday school and small group classrooms as as he does outside in our own homes? Brent and I, in 18 years of ministry, have faithfully asked the Lord to, to let us use our home at least once a week. And most of the time, it's been twice a week throughout the years. And we have seen hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. Many New Mexicans, when we were in Roswell, New Mexico, come to faith in Christ at our dinner table. Marriages restored at our dinner table. Called to ministry in our dinner table. Accepting obedience to baptism at our dinner table. But from that dinner table, that wasn't just the end. It was the beginning. And so then we would weekly have them and over great food begin to discuss the scriptures and how, you know, apply it in our lives. And now as God has blessed us with four children, nine and under, and another one on the way. Be praying, church. <laughs> We've strategically used our home and our dinner table. At our house, if you're a Brooks, five dinners a week minimum. That was the rule of my house growing up. My mom didn't care what was going on. Practices, social events, study. Really wasn't much of that in high school for me, but anyway, you get the point. You're at the dinner table. Now we've had the privilege of doing the same thing at our table. And we ask our kids three, three questions. And if you're a grandparent in here or aunt and uncle or a, a mom and dad, we've seen our kids thrive in these questions. Number one, what is... God doing in your life? What's the most exciting part of your day as a result? You'll be amazed what your kids say, your grandkids say. Secondly, what was the toughest part of your day? You know, so sometimes I, I wonder if we allow our children and our grandchildren to struggle. In such a world now that is PC and is safe, and do, do we allow them to accept failure as a part of life and then allow the Lord to build them back up? Not just in confidence, but in truth, in his promises. What's God doing in your life? What's the best part of your day? Secondly, what's the toughest part of your day? Thirdly, what do you praise God for today? And many of time, I've been amazed at how a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a three-year-old can praise the Lord in a more reverent way than I ever even imagined. And I find, church, that the blessing just isn't me partaking to them, but it's them ministering to me. And this church understood from its inception that everything that God gives us is a gift. And that I'm to use this gift to point to the giver. And so whether it's with much or with little, let's gather together. Let's give thanks. Let's point people to Jesus. Let's discuss the things of the Lord and give glory to the Lord. And let's do it all over again the next day. Churches that make a difference are mission-focused. They're also, look at verse 42, they're, they're prayer full. Prayer full. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church was found on two 
pillars. Bible living. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Bible living and prayers. In fact, if we were to study the rest of the book of Acts and we were to underline every time God's people gathered together to pray, you would find 25 separate times they were gathering together to specifically pray and ask the Lord to do what only he can do. You say, well, wait a minute, what, what is prayer? Prayer is a God-led conversation of aligning your thoughts to God's plan. Prayer is a continuous conversation that is led by God himself through the Holy Spirit. Where we come to him with an idea or with a thought or with a request. And God in doing so aligns our hearts to his spoken and revealed word, the scriptures. His testified word through his son. And then through our own lives, as we obediently follow not our plans or thoughts or desires, but God's plan for our life. And that's exactly the point that Luke the historian is making here. The early church, they prayed. And it speaks here of a corporate prayer gathering in the temple. But also it is ongoing to personally pray in their homes. They not only received the will and the glory of the Lord in one place, but now as literal temples of Christ himself, we're communing with the Father both in the synagogues and outside the synagogues as they became more and more and more like Christ. And humbly, we're still worshiping Christ as a result of the faithful obedience of these brothers' and sisters' prayers. If we were to take the answers of your prayers, and they were to come true next week in this coming month, whose lives would be changed? How many more people would follow Jesus Christ as Lord? How many more people would be baptized? How many more people would be taking yet another step of obedience in their walk towards the Lord? What would this church look like? What would your community and neighborhoods and even your own homes look like? I think so many times we find that when we come to the Lord, we do not ask too much, but too little. May we be people, men and women, boys and girls of faith, that boldly pray. And we don't know how, but there's power when we're on our knees. In a church that makes a difference, they're not only Jesus-centered, they're not only word and community-driven, they're not only mission-focused, they're prayerful. I think also, looking at verse 43, they're, they're wonderful. As a result of their devotion, look what the Lord did. In and amongst and through them, it says in verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word wonder here, or this word all here, is fascinating. It comes from the word phobos. Its literal translation is fear. It can mean stunningly fear. It speaks here contextually by the historian that literally everyone in Jerusalem was in reverent awe of what God was doing in and through Jesus' followers. Now, this is significant historically. Historians tell us that at the time of Acts chapter 2, there was anywhere from 50 to 80 million people in this region. Now, in the city of Jerusalem, there were about 5 
million Jews. The Bible is very clear that Peter preached Christ to Jews, and about 3,000 of them accepted Christ in verse 41. So if you take 3,000 Christ followers, and if you take that to 80 million people, that is 0.003% of the populace. How in the world can this happen? Can I tell you frankly that historically this is what God has already done? God has always taken a small step of faith through his people and has created a movement that only he and he alone gets the glory of. As the great writer from old Corey Tinboon said, it's not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. The early church never lost their wonder of what God has done and what he is doing. Church, may we never be the same. Hoffman Town, don't ever lose your wonder of what God does. Not just in the pew, but in believers that are new. Do not ever think to yourself, God's done. Do not ever think in and amongst yourselves that, well, I mean, what? I guess there's nothing else the Lord can do. No, that's actually the place in history where God is preparing you for your next breakthrough. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, I don't know if you've heard this week, but Christianity has, has been in this, this really perilous debate this entire week because of a man named Kanye West. Now, Kanye West is a, a singer, and he's a rapper, and a songwriter, and he's an entrepreneur, and he's written in his past some, some very promiscuous lyrics that frankly aren't appropriate at any level, that should never be written. But Kanye West has recently repented of his sin and placed his full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he is telling the world that story. And so now Christianity is asked with the question, well, what do we think of this? I mean, what? talk about in wonder. I mean, obviously we know this man's past. What about his present and future. And frankly, I'll tell you that, that we should be very humbly excited that any movement towards Jesus should be celebrated with the caveat that we should take the great theologian Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Kanye West has a new album out called Jesus is King. And it's going to be, at the end of the month, the number one album in the world. In fact, did you realize that in, since releasing this album, Jesus is King, even Google, which, by the way, is not a pro-Christian company, not a conservative company at all, even Google has verified that verses about Jesus, verses about salvation, verses about John 3.16 have increased by 700%. Yeah, praise God. So, of course, we celebrate what God has done. We stand in wonder and in awe, because we proclaim to the nations that Jesus can save anybody, for everybody is somebody to Jesus. And you know, the greatest truth of that statement is the Bible himself. There was no more scandalous Christians than the book of Acts. For instance, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert, this man was a centurion. He wasn't a man of faith. He was a man of prestige and honor. He didn't receive instruction. He gave instruction. 
And yet here is this man, the moment he hears the gospel, he gives his life to Christ. Why? Because Jesus can save anybody, for everybody is a somebody to Jesus. What about in Acts chapter 8? Simon the sorcerer. This man's such a train wreck, he actually went as himself at Halloween. (laughs) And yet he hears the good news of Jesus Christ. And he repents of his sin and he gives his life completely to the king. Jesus, once a man who devoted his time and his resources as a sorcerer to literally discrediting God's power and glory, now is a faithful proclaimer. How? Because Jesus can save anybody, for everybody is a somebody to Jesus. What about Apollos? Apollos in Acts chapter 18, Apollos was the great communicator, was the great entertainer, was the one where hundreds and thousands of people would come and hear rhetoric and poems and acting. And he gives his life to Jesus Christ, the King. And literally, church after church after church in this area is never the same. Church, don't ever lose your wonder of what God can do. Why? Because Jesus can save anybody for everybody is a somebody to Jesus. Finally, the one you should know, Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was, his mama called him Saul. And he led tremendous destruction upon God's church. At the end of Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, and then the Lord met him in Acts chapter 9, and literally history has never been the same. Thirteen books in the entire New Testament, arguably the greatest Christ follower that we have ever been exposed to or know about. Church, don't ever lose your wonder. Maybe you're here this morning and you're at the end of your rope. Don't ever lose a wonder of what God can do in your life. Maybe you're here and you're searching and you've got question after question after question. All you need to know is one answer. Jesus can save anybody for everybody is a somebody to Jesus. Give your life this morning to Jesus Christ and allow him to take over your life. And it'll never be the same. A church that makes a difference is not just Jesus-centered. It's not just word and community driven. It's not just mission focused or prayerful. They're wonderful. Hoffman Town, don't ever lose your wonder. I think sixthly, they're also member sent. And the Bible says in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, we have a great example of this this past week, and that Halloween was on Thursday, and I don't know about you and your household, but I tell my kids all the time, I only offer you a benevolent dictatorship. Everything in your life and all your possessions are mine and your mother's, unless I get them first. And so as they went out and gathered all this candy, we put it all in one pot. And everything that had chocolate and peanut butter, mine and mama's. Everything else that they approved, they could have once a day if we hadn't already eaten it, frankly. And you know what? I'm not alone. I read an article this week that 66% of all parents steal their children's Halloween candy. I'm frankly surprised that number isn't higher. I think if they polled the grandparents, it would be higher, by the way. Is that what happened here? You have this collective pod and gathering and there was a distribution to all... No, that's, that's not what Christ's church did at all. In fact, there's something historically you need to know. In this province and area, though ruled by the Romans, the Greek way of life dominated their statutes and their laws and their ethics. 
And so the Greeks would say that it was the good of man to collectively gather your possessions and then to distribute those from a central source. And you wonder why, specifically in Eastern Europe and Western Europe now, why socialism and those styles of government are so prevalent. Because it is a Greek ethic and philosophy. Christianity is in complete contrast. This isn't a government order or ethic. This is, in contrast, a willful acknowledgement that all things are given by God. And that if God has given me more than I can need, and there's a brother or sister in Christ or someone who needs another need, then God has graciously given to me so I can bless others. And that is why this action is unique to the church in Jerusalem. It's actually not mentioned one other time in the entire New Testament. The early church was willfully and continually and sacrificially selling their property and their possessions. Verse 45 is not socialism, as the early church did not put these resources in one common account, but voluntarily gave when someone had a need. The Bible is clear in verse 46. They, they still had their homes. So as the Lord blessed them, and as there were needs in the area, God's people began to meet those needs. I've seen the impact of this in my life. Britt and I, were, I was pastoring in Alabama, and the Lord did a mighty work in our church there. And we had an opportunity to, to go to a resort in the foothills of the Appalachians. And it's just beautiful if you've been in that part of, of Alabama. And so we went there with our family. And it was one of these resorts where you show up, and, and literally they, they take care of everything else. So they had multiple restaurants for dinner. They, they had a, a wonderful place for breakfast. They had three or four different pools that you know your kids could do anything they wanted to throughout those pools. And so when we got there, we got there right around the morning and checked in. We went to lunch. And and so we, we had a wonderful lunch, and we were about to go hit the pool. And, and our waiter, I, I began to pay, he said, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll just put it on your, your room. What's your room number? And I said, well, it's 463. And so he said, oh, hey, great, we'll, we'll just put it on there. And so we went to the pool that day, and, you know, it's, it's hot in the summer in Alabama. to just like, well, it's not as hot here in Albuquerque. But, you know, for those of us who don't live over 5,000 feet in the air, it gets pretty hot, you know. And so we needed a Coke and some drinks, and, and so that they would come by and, I said, hey, can we have a couple of water? I said, oh, sure. What's your room number? I said, 463. So we went to a wonderful dinner that night, and, and man, same thing, 463. So we show up the next day, and, and I started noticing something with my four children, that they were, about 11 o'clock in the morning, the most popular kids in the pool. And there were all of these kids gathering around, and, and my sweet nine-year-old and seven-year-old would kind of, you know, point to the lady, and all of a sudden, you know, there were, there were Cokes and chicken tenders and snow cones, and all of a sudden, I had kids coming by, thank you, Mr. Brooks, thank you, Mr. Brooks, and, you know, I had parents waving at me, you know, hey. So I'm beginning to wonder, something's not right here, and so I go to check out the next morning, and the man says, oh, and by the way, here, here is your bill, and I noticed there was $150 extra in room service. I said, what is this? And I began looking, chicken tenders, snow cones, Cokes. My kids were taking my room number and buying snacks for half the resort. The one being generous was them. The one providing the generosity was me. <laughs> so I'm frustrated. How in the world did this happen? And I get in the van, and Brennan, we have two boys and two girls right now. And 
My two girls were in the back, and they leaned over to one another and said, wasn't this the best vacation? <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. <laughs> but think about that for a minute. Have you ever met a need in someone's life before? Have you ever given something that God had blessed you with and, and saw that God used that same gift to bless someone even more than you ever thought possible? Have you ever helped somebody who truly was hurting? Have you ever met a need? And have you found that in meeting that need that it actually blessed you more than it could ever bless them? Church, the moment you give your life to Christ, the God is very clear, you've been given a gift. And that gift is meant to glorify the giver. And in glorifying the giver, you're to use that gift in the place that God has placed you to use that gift. And if you will step out on faith, and if you will get in a very intentional fashion, start meeting people's needs. Only God and God alone will get the glory. And you will find that you as a member are sent by a sent and sending God himself. And you'll be bringing people to Jesus one need at a time. God's people meet the needs of the people God places in their life. That's church that makes a difference. I think seventhly and finally, a church that makes a difference, it's, it's Godward. Notice verse 47. And they were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That they weren't inward that as a natural result of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in and through them, they not just were outward, they were Godward. Giving praise not to themselves, not to a facility or a building or a pastor or a ministry. No, giving praise to its rightful place, the giver himself, God. And in light of that, God graciously began moving in and through them and gave them favor throughout all of their town and region and the world has never been the same. You say, well, historically, what does this look like? God continually added to their number. God created this church in Acts chapter 1 with 120 people. He then grew it to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. 25 years later, this church grew to 50,000 people. In 25 years, they went from 120 to 50,000. 250 years later, 8 million people were now followers of Jesus Christ. And now, 2,000 years later... Conservative estimates say 2.4 billion people have repented of their sin and placed their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All because this church said, we desire to make a difference. Not just by being Jesus-centered or word or community-driven or mission-focused or prayerful or wonderful or member-sent. No, we desire to be not inward, but Godward in all we do. And by God's grace and the faith of his people, he can make a difference through a group of believers who says we desire to do just that. In closing, it was the great evangelist Billy Graham who said of his early ministry that God had put on his heart to lead the largest crusade and revival that the state of California has ever seen. Largest one ever. And amazingly, his, his most ardent critics weren't the secular media or atheists or agnostic or people unchurched or de-churched. 
but we're pastors and fellow Christians. One pastor in the Los Angeles Times said, if Billy Graham comes here, he's going to set our churches back 10 years. So Billy Graham came as the Lord provided and made his way to California to lead the largest crusade that that state would ever see by God's grace. And as soon as he got off a plane, a reporter stuck a microphone in his mouth and said, Reverend Graham, there are pastors here that oppose you and oppose this crusade. In fact, they've said that if you come, that the church will be set back 10 years. Your comments, sir. And Billy Graham, without hesitation, said, you know what? It's not my desire to set the church back one year or three years or five years or 10 years in my coming. It's my desire to set the church back 2,000 years. May we be men and women, boys and girls of God, who in light of very tumultuous, uneasy times, may we direct our hearts toward a never-ending gospel that points people to Jesus, a word that is true and sufficient and errant and inspired in men and women, boys and girls, as the church that desires in and through us to make a difference. Not for the glory of our name, but for the glory of his. Amen? If you would, please bow your head and close your eyes. Maybe you're here this morning and the Lord brought you to Hoffmantown. And you're at a season of life where things just don't make sense. Decisions haven't gone as you thought. Life has more questions than answers. And you come here this morning and you hear of a group of people 2,000 years ago, mostly uneducated, starving, but full of the Lord. And the same Christ that filled their hearts is available to you today. And if you're here this morning and you desire the unending, never stopping, giving love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you repent of your sin, turn from it. I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to think those thoughts. And if you will place your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done, that you believe that, that God sent His Son and the life that you and I were supposed to live, He lived sinless and perfect. And the death that was meant for us, for the wages of sin is death, He accepted. But what is inevitable for all of us? Christ rose and is alive. And He can be your Lord and Savior right now. If you're here this morning, do not leave without giving your life completely to Jesus Christ. If you're here and you want to repent of your sin and give your life completely to Jesus Christ, with every head bowed, every eye closed, will you just raise your hand right now? I just want to pray with you. I just want to have a time of prayer and celebration. Just raise your hand right now. Lord, I want to give my life completely to you. Praise God for you, sir. Anybody else? Looking in the back, I want to give my life to Christ. Just raise your hand right now. Anybody else? Praise God for you, ma'am. Anybody else? I want to give my life to Christ. Praise God. Anybody else? 
I think now for those who need prayer, now for those who, who need God to show up in a special way, can I just have a time of prayer and dedication for you and over you? If you would raise your hand, Pastor, I need prayer. Pastor, my family needs prayer. Pastor, our church needs prayer. Praise God for you, sir. Praise God for you, ma'am. Praise God in the back. Praise God for you, sir. Anybody else? Praise God for you, little one. Anybody else? Praise God for you, the group in the back. Praise God. Pastor, I need prayer. Can you please pray for me? Praise God, this group in the front. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Praise God for you in the back. I think for those of those who are believers, would you, would you join me in prayer as we pray for celebration of new salvation, but then also as we pray a prayer of blessing over Hoffmantown and what God has done and what he's doing. Father, we love you, and God, we thank you, Lord, so much for today. Father, we thank you for your word and for your son. Father, for the Holy Spirit that is alive and lives in and through us. Father, as we grow and are challenged and inspired, Father, let us not just look outward but upward. Father, for those who are new brothers and sisters this morning, God, we praise you for salvation. Father, for those that have needs that God only you can meet, Father, meet them in a way that gives you the glory. Father, be with this church. Lord, continue to build and encourage and guide, strengthen to be everything they can be for you and for you alone. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for this chance to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. For those of you who accepted Christ this morning, I'm going to be right down with the front. Pastor David's going to be down here. We have a couple of men in the back as well that if you, you need to talk to somebody, please go to the Welcome Center or Connection Center. We'd love to talk to you today. In the meantime, Pastor Steve will be back next Sunday. We love you, Hoffman Town. I'm grateful for all you're doing, not just for New Mexico, but for the kingdom. We'll see you next Sunday.